Good morning. It's really uh, great for me to be here. This is actually my very first day as a bishop full-time, and I'm glad to be here at Christ the King with Ashley and all the team here and with all of you. It's a real honor. Um, Before I read the psalm, let me just say, in our readings so far, we've heard uh, important words that connect to our discipleship. Words like fairness and sin and judgment and shame. It's part of all of our life. We've heard about authority and obedience. Um, And in my sermon this morning, I'm going to be talking about discipleship and core discipleship, things important to my life, to the people being confirmed today and their journey with Jesus and all of our journey with Jesus. And let me just acknowledge, discipleship in the scripture and the way it's presented to us is fairly simple, but we all have to understand that it's also hard. Sometimes hard to walk with Jesus. And we struggle with it. And we need a a way that we can walk into Christ and the love of Christ in our lives. I think Psalm 131 gives us an invitation into that way of life. And so that's my invitation to myself this morning as I preach to myself on my first day as a bishop. To all of you who are being confirmed and to all of us and the people of God. Let's hear the the word of the Lord from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Spirit of God, we ask that you would... Uh, Quicken our hearts to hear you. Give us capacity in our ears to listen well. Help us silence all the the messages of the world and the morning already and our work, our family, so that we can listen to you, Lord. Churn up the soil of our hearts that we could be good soil where your seed can be planted and we can walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my first memory of this short little psalm uh, was about 30 years ago. I was a young regional director with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I was actually one of the youngest in the country, the youngest in the country. And I was an up-and-comer, if you want to use those words, and I believed it. And my boss was coming into town, and he was going to spend some time with me, spend a day with me, what I thought coaching me at how I could go from good to great how I can maximize my leadership in the kingdom and really go for it. That's what I was anticipating in this day, to get developed, get my skills honed, have my wisdom and leadership developed and all of that. that. Instead, when we got to this lake house where we were going to spend the day, my boss and friend Doug sat me on the back porch and handed me a sheet of paper with the words of Psalm 131 on it. He said, read this for a while. I'm going for a walk. I'll be back in a couple of hours. So I read and tried to pray through these three verses for a couple of hours. He came came back. We discussed it over lunch. And then he repeated that exact pattern two more times. So I spent six hours with the shortest psalm in all of the Bible. And I confess I didn't get it, not even one word, and I was frustrated. I was like, why are we spending so much time on these three little verses? I need training. Don't you know that I could be great? On the way back to my home, I 
uh, got kind of cross and argumentative with Doug. By the way, he's an amazing human being. Uh, I said, hey, listen, I need training from you and leadership. I have a big job. I need help so I can become who I'm supposed to be. Why did we waste the day reading just three verses of the Bible? See, I was mad and I was hurt. I was trying to take things into my own hands. I was worried that I would miss God's call on my life. I was worried that I was going to miss becoming who I was supposed to be. I wasn't quiet, and I certainly wasn't still. Doug listened to me with patience and love. He wasn't defensive or argumentative in one iota. He listened to my soul's cry. When I was done with my venting, he just simply said, Brian, I'm not worried about your leadership. You're going to know what to do in the right time but I'm really worried about your soul. Doug, with expert love and tender leadership, used this psalm ultimately to invite me not just to caring for my own soul differently, but to reframe my thinking about discipleship. To reframe it in a way that I think saved my life. It certainly saved me from myself, from taking too much control, too much leadership of my own life and way of being. It saved me from ambition, from my constant wrestling, striving, and anxiety. And this is what I want to invite you into, too, a new way of thinking about your life and discipleship, a way of entering into the story of God, to take your place in the story as you're intended to be, into a life of rest, not of anxiety, into a life full of hope and trust in the Lord. Let's start with the first verse, shall we? Um, it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvelous for me. Now, many translations of this first line render it, my heart is not proud. And you know what we say about people who say they're not proud. No humble person would ever say they're not proud. They know that there's some kernel of pride in their heart if they're truly humble. It's like our youngest son, when he was two or three years old, uh, maybe up to four, he would be riding in the back seat of the car and he would scream out almost every trip, I'm not tired! And we knew it was dead giveaway. He'd be asleep in 30 or 40 seconds, right? It was just this complaint. Um, so to, what does it mean to pray, my heart is not proud? It kind of doesn't make sense to pray that, does it? So what's going on? I think it's not the psalmist declaring a state of being, I'm not proud, but he's actually describing a decision to choose a way of being. When we pair the first half of the verse to the second, we begin to understand what's really happening. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, he says. See, the psalmist is admitting that there are things that are way beyond him, things that are past his pay grade, so to speak. Again, it's a decision to a certain way of life, one that chooses to let God be God and to take our place in the world that is in keeping with the most important truths in the world. God's God. I'm a creation. God is eternal. I'm temporal. God is all-powerful. I'm limited. To pray this psalm is to decide to let God be God, to let Him run the universe and let Him run my life and to let Him provide for me day by day by day. It is a decision to enter the story in the truth of who I really am. I'm a creation. 
I'm a son or daughter of the living God. I'm going to take my place in the story in that way. It's a decision not to set my sights on things that are beyond my grasp because God's the only one who can, can and should reach that far. Eugene Peterson renders this verse in a way that begin, begins to bring emphasis to this decision of the way of life. He, he writes it this way, God, I'm not trying to rule my roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. Friends, you and I have no business trying to run the universe, trying to run the neighborhood, or even our own families. It's too much for us. We are finite and limited. Only God can really handle them in the right way and with the right heart. And it's not the story God is writing for you and for me. But it gets complicated when we understand that the psalm was written by David, King David. What's beyond the pay grade of a king? If he doesn't think you should think too highly of himself or involve himself in weighty matters as king, what business do any of us have in exerting ourselves in any sphere of the lives that we're given? The psalm, friends, is not ultimately an invitation to passivity. The decision to take our place in the world under God is not to abandon our roles or callings in the world. We're called to be God's hands and feet. We're to feed the poor, clothe the naked, visit the, visit the prisoner, protect the widow and the orphan. We are still called to put our hands to the duties, tasks, and engagements of our various callings, those we choose and those that are chosen for us. But we're not to run the world. That's God's job. And he's been doing it well before us, when we, before we got here, and he'll continue doing it well past we're here unless he comes again. We may not understand what God's doing, and we may not even like what he seems to be happening in our lives. But we have to decide not to run our roost. I'm not going to concern myself with what only God can really do and with what only he can really comprehend. It's too great, too marvelous for us. But how do we go about living our lives and being that faithful place practically to the callings in the world that, without overstepping our bounds? I think it helps us to understand how the Hebrew mind understands the nature of a day. For thousands of years, the Hebrew culture considered the day to begin when the sun went down. So our basic understanding of the day is that it begins when I get out of bed, when I start activity and I get the coffee going. Or my alarm goes off and I pretend to be asleep and my wife gets the coffee going. Think about our mindset shift if we understand this, that the start of the day is at sunset. The day does not begin with my activity, my agency, or energy in the world. No, the day begins when I go to bed. It's like saying that I'm not the most important thing going on in the world right now. The day will begin with my inactivity, and the God who never sleeps will be at work ruling the world and starting the day without needing me. It doesn't mean our work is unimportant. It just means that we are not. Our work is not primary. God is the only primary thing in the universe. But we are not to run the world. That's God's job. And he's been doing it, again, well before we've ever been around. And remember, this Hebrew concept of the day holds so much dignity and value for our participation in his work the unfolding of his rule and reign in the world. We wake up into a world in which God has already been at work while we sleep. And he 
we awake into his invitation to us that lovingly, joyfully, and freely invites us into what he cares about most in the universe. Now admit that this is a countercultural way of being, isn't it? You won't find this invitation to any of the business journals, self-help books, or Instagram followers that you have in your life. The advice of the world is simply seize the day, exert your power, take charge of your life. Isn't that right? Eugene Peterson says that what is described in Scripture as the basic sin, the sin of taking things into our own hands, is now being, being our own God, is grabbing what is there while you can get it, is now described by our culture as basic wisdom. The world around us thinks that it's basic wisdom to lead and rule your own existence. But David, the author of the psalm, was as king, remember? And he chose a different way, the way of God. And remember, he had to wake up each morning and make a decision that influenced the political, social, and religious life of every human in the nation. Again, the psalm's not an invitation to passivity or, in, or inactivity. The psalm is David's reminder to himself that while he's king, he's not God. It's a check on his ego, his ambition, and his runaway dreams for himself. It's an invitation to humility. There's a way of going about the, our life under God and for God rather than ourselves. And friends, that's your place in the story. That's my place in the story. We're not God, but we can be his hands and feet as he empowers us by his spirit. Now, I admit the balance is hard. It's simple to say, but again, discipleship can be hard sometimes. Maintaining a proper relationship to my work and my calling while not overstepping my bounds is for me a daily struggle. In part because I really care about the work I do. I get to put my hands to the things that really matter in the kingdom. And I think you care too. Your work has consequence and there's issues going on in the world that really matter. Life and death situations are going on. Sometimes reminding myself that I'm not God is not enough to curb my appetite for success either. I crave the feel-good sense of being noticed and praised. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm addicted to it. I think we all do to some degree, right? And that's why this next step is important for me. And the next step of the psalm is important for me. It's about getting still and getting quiet. The psalmist says, O Lord, my heart's not lifted high. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great for me. So I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Friends, calm and quiet doesn't come naturally in my world, does it to you? There's nothing naturally calm and quiet about our families, our jobs, our commutes. All of these seem to awaken in us our inner infant. My soul gets noisy, unsettled, and fussy, especially in the TSA pre-line. It takes work to get quiet. And for most people, it's a deliberate choice that happens with planning, care, and a deliberate decision, a spiritual discipline of choice. I have to will my body, will my soul, will my whole life to bow to quiet. In my doctoral research, I studied exemplars of spiritual health who are also doing mission work and pastor, pastors. 
Um, these were all great leaders. And what was fascinating to me about all this group of people from around the world, different cultures, is they all shared only one single practice that they all did on a regular basis. And that practice was the regular practice of retreat. Part of their daily habit is, or you know, monthly, quarterly habit as leaders, uh, their discipline they, t- they chose in the world was to remove themselves from their daily activity. They literally put the world on mute so they could cultivate the capacity to hear the voice of Jesus through the Spirit and in the Word. Friends, it's hard to be quiet while holding a noisy cell phone. It's constantly begging for your attention and sending you messages about your relative value in the world, isn't it? It's also impossible with a constant barrage of Fox News or CNN blaring from your television telling you what to believe. We need to silence the world in its messages about our values and our lives, our security. We need to root out all the lies that are coming at us from the world all around us. See, quiet and calm are not ignorant of the real world issues, however. They simply do not let the world around them determine what's important, what's valuable, or what's real. I think that is the core challenge of all discipleship, fundamental to our relationship to God. We need to get quiet so we can hear the Spirit. Let Him remind us of the most important truths in the universe. Now, Jesus talks about this in what's called the parable of the soils, I think. You remember that parable? It's a pretty famous one. There are four soils. The first is hard pan road where the soil of the Word can't penetrate and it's stolen by birds. There's rocky soil while the the, the, the plants uh, raise up really quickly, but there's little root so that they wither and die under the trials and the burn, burdens of life. And then there's the good soil where the plant can flourish and produce a crop 30, 60, 100 times more than was planted. And then there's a fourth soil, the weedy soil, where the plant grows up among the weeds. It still lives, the plant still produces a crop, but the real fruitfulness is choked out by competition with the weeds. I think this soil describes most of us. It's part of our challenge of discipleship in this culture. This is endemic in American Christianity. Jesus' commentary on our weedy soil was that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things choke out our lives and make it unfruitful cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Friends, those are loud in my life. Are they loud in your life? When I was 30 years ago, wanting more as a leader, wanting advancement as a leader, all of those lies were really loud in my life. I was seeking more leadership, more skill, more notice, more place. We all wrestle with it at some degree. And it doesn't take a careful reading of the word to know that the author of the psalm wrestled with it too. David struggled with his family. He struggled with temptations. He struggled with the weight of his work. He made mistakes. He overreached. And he also submitted to the Lord. And yet he chose ultimately to cultivate a life of quiet and stillness. It's the grown-up confidence of a secure relationship with God. Now, can I take us to another story in the Gospels that is familiar to you? The story of Mary and Martha. Do you remember? One is working, one is listening to Jesus. 
Jesus is at their home, and as is custom, while the food was being prepared, Jesus is teaching and his friends. We learn that Mary is at Jesus' feet, soaking in every word that she can get. Martha is a buzz of activity. The passage says that she's distracted by all the preparations. Like many of us, she's weedy soil. The cares of the meal, the deceitfulness of the promise of a perfect evening, all have her tied in virtual knots. What comes out of her in that moment is anger, hurt, and competitiveness. Don't you care that Mary's leaving me to do all the work alone? Have you ever complained in that way? Martha had a choice, friends. It was probably not by, between making dinner and sitting at Jesus' feet. For whatever reason, it was just simply her night to cook the food. But she had a choice nonetheless. I think it was in the moment when she got Jesus' attention. Perhaps that moment was when actually Jesus noticed Martha because Jesus always notices. He always sees us. He's always paying attention to us. Martha chose to focus on herself, however. Can't you see that I'm doing everything? Perhaps there was another opportunity, another ch choice she should have, could have simply made to say, Jesus, I'm so busy and I'm really afraid. I'm afraid of missing out. What if I miss your words that you have for me? What if I miss your calling on my life? What if I miss what is best for me because I'm making this meal? Perhaps Jesus could have calmed her heart in that moment, stilled it, put it at rest, assured her that she's seen, noticed, and will not be left out like a good father would an anxious toddler. You matter. I see you. You're important to me. I think that was her invitation from Jesus. We know that Jesus responds to what she said. You were worried and upset about a lot of things. Mary has chosen a better way. It won't be taken from her. Mary chose, and Martha was invited to the same singular focus on Jesus, a decision to let Jesus rule her house, their neighborhood, their family, and their life. That is always the better way, to let Jesus rule and to calm ourselves in the power of his control. Even in the midst of making dinner for unexpected guests. You see, the picture of the weaned child is not that we stay small, dependent with infantile uh, de dependencies and, and imagination. Rather, it's the picture of a person who can now be at peace enough to enjoy the relationship with their parent, confident that their parent knows what's needed and is loving enough to provide it in the right time. Whether it's food, clothing, meaning, value, place in the world, vocation. It's the word picture of seek first the kingdom, and I will give you whatever you need. The invitation is to a still and quiet heart that lets God be in charge of the very real cares, concerns, and troubles in the world and in our lives. And in a way that cultivates greater relationship and intimacy with God himself. That's what it's really about in our discipleship. Greater intimacy with God. The theologian Arthur Weiser says it this way, No desire now comes between you and your God. For you're sure that God knows what you need before you ask him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding the mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper then learns to desire God for himself and not 
as a means of to fulfillment of his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has shifted. He now rests no longer in himself, but in God. It's a picture of a child at rest, knowing he or she is fully loved, fully cared for, fully protected. It's an invitation to rest. A weaned child can now say no to the cares of the world. I can get involved, but they're not mine to fix. I can say no to the deceitfulness of wealth. I will be content with what I have. I can now order my desires so that they're no longer, I'm no longer driven to achieve, to attain, or to control. I'm now free to place my hope in something worthy of my life. That's God himself. And that's how David ends his psalm. O Israel, O church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And it, a, a, a challenge to his own heart. Trust in something worthy of your hope. Not the world, not its attainments, not its achievements, not the positions, not the power. Friends, the psalm is not an invitation to passivity, again, where we do not put our hand to the duties, tasks, and engagements of our various callings. The invitation, the promise of it, is that we can do it with rest, confidence and peace of one whose hope is in the Lord who loves us more than we can ask or imagine. Peterson, again, put it this way. And, and that is what Psalm 131 nurtures. It's a quality of calm confidence and quiet strength that knows the difference between unruly arrogance and faithful aspiration. It knows how to discriminate between infantile dependency and childlike trust that chooses to aspire to trust. In the midst of our lives, with all of its cares and concerns, with all the duties and burdens, I've stilled and quieted my soul. God's got this. God's got me. I will trust Him. I can rest. I can hope. I can be at peace. Friends, that's my invitation to you today. And if you're being confirmed, that's my invitation to you to your ongoing discipleship. Place yourself in the story of God. Let him be God. Be a child of the Father, dearly loved, fully known, invited to rest, to put your trust and hope in him, to have a life of hope that's worthy of your hope. Let's live that life of discipleship together, shall we? Now, earlier I mentioned the idea of retreat. And I think this psalm was for King David just that, a literal 30-second reminder to him that he's not alone. A daily retreat he could re go back to time and time and time again. It reminded him that there's something more important, some, someone more powerful than the challenges that he faced. I think that's how this short psalm, again, worked in his life, purposely just three little verses that he could carry through the day. That mini retreat from the cares of the world and the siren call of wealth and the constant desire for the things other than Jesus. And that's what this psalm has become for me after spending six hours with it alone on the back porch of a lake house 30 years ago. It's a part of me now. I carry it with me. And one of the reasons I'm preaching it this day on my first day as a bishop is to remind my life what it's all about. It's to be a child of the Father who loves me and knows me and has been at work in my life in ways I could never ask or imagine. 
He's got it. I don't have to be God. I don't have to get it all right. I can trust Him. And so can you. Let's pray this psalm together as we close our time in the Word. Oh Lord, our hearts are not lifted up. Our eyes are not raised too high. We don't occupy ourselves with things that are too great and too marvelous for us. Instead, Lord, we choose to calm and quiet our souls this day. Like wean children with a parent who loves us. Like wean children, Lord, make our souls within us. O Israel, O church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.